everybody. Welcome back to another fun podcast of Emergency Trauma Mama. And if you're joining us for the first time, I'm actually going to go a little bit off script here and talk about something a little bit different, but something that I get quite a few questions and DMs on on the gram in regards to certification exams. So a lot of times people have been nurses for a while and they want to take a certification exam in their specialty. So obviously for emergency nurses, there's the board certification for emergency nurses, which entails quite a few exams. Actually, if you go to the BCEN website, it's the CPEN or the PEDS emergency nurse, the CEN, which I think most people are familiar with, um, particularly in the emergency nursing arena. The CTRN, which is for uh, transport nurses and the certified flight nurse. And then there's the TCRN, which is actually the newest baby uh, to join the crowd, uh, which is just strictly trauma certification. And I'm actually the proud uh, certification owner of two of those. There are actually people that I come that I can I speak with them privately on Instagram or I know them through social media and they actually have all five if you can believe it so there are people like that out there and um, obviously they're very adept at taking exams and their knowledge base is so broad and so wide Um, you know maybe they've been a transport nurse and they've been in a specifically in a peds emergency department Um, perhaps they've been a flight nurse for quite some time. So they see all of those types of cases in addition to the flight nurse plus the peds, um, plus the transport nursing type of approach to some of the questions. Because I'll tell you what, having only sat for two out of the five, they're not exactly easy exams. You really do need to prepare for those. And I get a lot of questions about that particular scenario asking me, well, what do you think is the best way? And to be honest with you, it depends on you as a person. So whether you're auditory, obviously you're listening to this podcast, so you're auditory to some extent, uh, visual, which A lot of our uh, millennial nurses that I have taught in the past, because I do have a past history as an academic nursing professor, um, in addition to a nurse educator. So I do find that a lot of our nurses are visually, visual learners are visually driven. Um, However, there's tactile, so they kind of need to touch things or um, write things out as they're listening sometimes. Not to say you can only be one type of learner because many people are more than one type of learner. But I'll tell you what, based on my history and having taught a lot of people over the years as a preceptor, as a mentor, um, just in general, it helps you to know what kind of learner you are um, because then that's how you're really going to prepare for these types of exams. For instance, you know your auditory. So you're probably going to want to listen to a ton of podcasts. Um, And if you're actually like visual in addition, you might want to go to a site that offers you like a virtual computer adaptive testing environment where you actually can kind of clip through the questions with your computer 
and do the visual piece as well. And then of course that also feeds into your tactile learning because you're actually touching the computer as you're learning, as you're looking, as you're kind of memorizing the facts and thinking about some of these questions. So really truly understanding uh, what type of learner you are. And it's like super easy. You can just go like to Google and put in what type of learner am I? And they'll give you like a really quick assessment. Most people already know, um, but they. it was surprising to me when I had senior BSN accelerated students that I'd ask them, well, how are you studying? Or how do you learn best? And they kind of really didn't know the answer to either of those questions. Either A, they just didn't have um, good developmental study skills to begin with, or you know, no one really taught them when they got into college. Hey, this is a really good way to study. Or B, asking them, what kind of learner are you? Um, it was almost as if I was one of the first professors to ask them, how do you learn best? So um, that being said, we'll move on into some type of questions, um, some CEN. We'll start with CEN because I feel like that's kind of the, the foundation um, for a lot of nurses when they start thinking about taking a certification exam. The one I hear from the most are the nurses who have been nurses for about anywhere from two to five years. They're kind of in that sweet spot where they're you're really learning. Their mind is just absorbing all these amazing facts. They're still, you know, really young and eager um, to learn. Not to say that you can't be old and eager to learn because I feel that I still have uh, that drive to learn. However, their brain is really just absorbing things kind of quickly um, at that rate. You know, but that, that sweet spot, I call it that two to five year new ER nurse, but not really new, new. Um, so when you think about Benner, you know, Patricia Benner, my favorite nursing theorist. Yes, I'm a nerd. So the novice to expert, you know, they're not novice anymore because they're, they're way past the new grad stage. They've actually become competent. Um, and so they've moved on into that next stage where they're really building upon their skill sets. They're learning the different types of emergencies and when you go to the BCEN website, the beauty of that is it breaks it right on down for you. So it's basically got an exam blueprint for you. And it says, okay, there will be approximately this many neurologic questions, this many cardiac questions, this many respiratory. Like it literally breaks it down into categories. So again, that being said, I find that that's really helpful and gearing you towards what do you need to know. Now, it's not gonna tell you specifically you're gonna have a cranial nerve question. It's not gonna go that far in depth. But if you know that neuro is like not your jam, then you might wanna brush up on neuro because there are actually a ton of prep courses out there now. And I actually have thought about um, coming up with my own because I do have that academic teaching background. Um, so that's a thought that I had because I'm really interested in helping people get to the next level. And for some people, it's literally just sitting for that exam and getting some more initials after their name, because that is a lot of pride and accomplishment as a professional. So let's move on to a couple questions here. Oh, and again, like if, for instance, a lot of people come and tell me, um, I can't stand OBGYN. It's like, you know, kind of like this 
lurking thing in the closets, like the, the, the boogeyman, you know, OBGYN, everybody's nightmare. It's like, it's really not that bad. Um, you know, you go back to your schooling and learning about placenta previa versus placenta abruptio, which one has dark red bleeding and bright red bleeding and so on and so forth. So it literally, the, the exam blueprint, if you haven't looked at it already, I highly advise that you do so because it'll help you get dialed into, hey, you know what, this area, um, say cardiac's not your jam. So you like taking care of cardiac STEMIs, but that's it. Get them off to the cath lab and you're done. You check out. Um, if you're like, I can't remember the specifics of the conduction system. That's where you know you have to go back and you'll review it and you'll you'll basically relearn it from nursing school in a way that might help you because I feel like when you put examples right on top of the fact of a fact, like give actual real life examples of a patient and build that into a cardiac conduction system type lecture, um, it really just sticks more for the nurses who are trying to study for this type of exam. So... That is my take on the whole thing. And like I said, I've gotten a lot of DMs about this. So we're going a little bit off script today. We're just going to do kind of a couple question review, talk about it a little bit. And I'm sure I'll be back next time with another fun podcast that just revolves around trauma. Um, so let's go on. So let's. here's an example of a question. It just says, which drug is given IV as a pharmacological support to stop an active seizure? <clears throat> Excuse me. So when I look at questions, there's a specific way that I break them down. And I actually learned this from Kaplan way back when. I thought I was going to like sit for the LSAT. So this question is hard to dissect because it's a straight up knowledge question. Okay. So if you don't know pharmacologically speaking, what drugs are what, because it's going to give you four choices, then you're kind of up the river without a paddle because this isn't that type of question where you actually have to apply a bunch of knowledge to a clinical scenario. So let's just talk about this. So your choices are A, diazepam, B, phenytoin, C, temazepam, or D, phenobarbital. So if you didn't know the answer to this question, you would be hard-pressed to answer it correctly because the other flip side of this coin is um, only the generics are listed. So if you don't know diazepam is Valium or phenytoin is Dilantin, um, then you're kind of like, huh, yeah, I can't really remember um, because a lot of exams nowadays have both. So they'll have the generic and then the brand name, um, particularly the NCLEX. So, of course, the answer to this, this says active seizure. Um, so I would really hone in on stop an active seizure, and then you won't really have to go any further. So, of course, the answer is A uh, for diazepam and lorazepam, of course, are the two drugs of choice to stop seizures. Phenytoin, phosphenytoin, phenobarb um, are pharmacologic measures to prevent seizure recurrence. So basically, this was just testing your knowledge to see if you knew what was to be given, vitamin A or vitamin V, um, because obviously there's prophylaxis for seizures. There's stuff that we give 
you know, like Keppra. There's other drugs that we give, but that's, it's only asking you specifically to stop an active seizure, okay? So that's that question. Then sometimes there's questions where they want you to put things in order, um, like gowning up. There's those types of questions. Um, my favorite types of questions actually are the harder ones that a lot of people kind of glaze over when it comes to reviewing because they forget about legal issues or professional issues. So when it comes to that, um, people get really nervous. <laughs> And they're like, oh, I didn't really study this. But really use your common sense. Um, so here's an example. What does the plaintiff have to prove in litigation for negligence? So you'd say, well, I'm not an attorney. I don't know the answer to that. However, you do need to know in a court of law what you're covered for as a nurse. Like specifically for your state. What's listed in your Nurse Practice Act? Have you read your Nurse Practice Act? Um, if you haven't, I highly advise that you do. Because um, if you're popping in EJs like, like a champ and it says specifically in your Nurse Practice Act that you're not allowed to, um, perhaps you actually do have a bad outcome, patient gets phlebitis, or God forbid something else worse happens when you're inserting it. Um, guess what? You're in deep doo-doo and no attorney is going to, Say, oh yeah, I want to go ahead and uh, defend you. Because there's nothing to defend you against. Your malpractice, your negligence, your failure to read your own Nurse Practice Act. That's on you. Um, so, get off that soapbox. But you do need to know. And everything that you document is a legal document that can be subpoenaed. It can be discoverable. Everything that you do in your EMR, they look at how long you're in the EMR, what you're looking at, what you're clicking on, all of it, all that's discoverable by attorney. So make sure, for instance, if you're the house supervisor and you're supposed to just write a very brief report, that you're not writing a book because all of that is discoverable in a court of law. So I have seen um, house supervisors that write like, tons and tons of information when it specifically says only write the E number or the MRN number and don't like give a bunch of details. Also, you shouldn't be writing in the house supervisor report that an incident report was made. Same goes true for our nursing documentation, like patient file, incident report, documentation, whatever you call it in your hospital was done. Um, yeah, so like leave that documentation of the incident report like out of there. Um, just don't put it in. I'm sure you've heard that stuff before, but you would be surprised that a lot of nurses have not. And the other pieces part of this, which is completely unrelated to what we're talking about, but in a court of law, please, please don't ever write with your GSW patient's entrance or exit wound because you're not a forensic pathologist and they're not gonna like it in a court of law. They're gonna really challenge your credibility on the witness stand if you ever get subpoenaed. It's gonna be like 10 years from the case. And they're gonna say, so nurse, when did you go to medical school for forensic pathology? Because I see here that you charted entry wound to right anterior chest and exit wound to left posterior flank or whatever you wrote. And you're gonna say, hmm, well, 
I haven't been to medical school. I'm not a forensic pathologist. Oh, but you wrote here, entrance and exit wound. Are you not trained in forensic pathology? So you see here, um, it does not behoove you to ever do that. You can do hole one, hole two, hole three, and, you know, mock it up. Put it on your little diagram in your um, trauma chart because some places still use paper where you have the little man, little anatomical man with the front and the back. And you can put hole number one, hole number two, whatever. But, however, just do not write entry and exit wounds because, again, your credibility is everything in a court of law. And the minute that that's called into question, you're done. You're out of there. So, don't do it. It's tempting, I know, especially for us old schoolers. But don't do it. And teach everybody that you know and that you teach the same. Um, okay? So what does a plaintiff have to prove in a litigation for negligence? So in this, you would say the key word is prove and negligence. So if you don't know what constitutes negligence, you're not going to get this question right. Your answers that you have to choose from are A, intent to cause harm. There's some key words in there. B, substandard care delivery. That's another key word in there. C, mitigating circumstances. That's just to throw you straight off the trail. That has nothing to do with anything. D, lack of intent. Again, what does intent have to do? with negligence. Think about that. Are you intending to hurt somebody when something bad happens? No, absolutely not. So out of all of those things, even if you didn't really understand in a court of law what negligence is required, what a, what does a attorney have to prove in a court of law to actually demonstrate negligence? There's really only one that makes sense when it comes to nursing, and that is B substandard care delivery because how you give your care and how you document the care that you've given that all goes hand in hand that's the only thing that they have to prove in a court of law is that you did not adhere to the SOPs or standardized operating procedure which in the hospitals are your policy and procedures which is why I've always taught this for 25 plus years please read your hospital policy and procedure. And people are like, ain't nobody got time for that. And I'm like, really? Because I'm pretty sure that when you do get called into a court of law and you do get subpoenaed, they're going to ask you, well, what is your hospital policy and procedure state that you need to do when you're giving blood to a patient? And they're going to have a copy and they're going to throw it in front of you. And whatever part that they feel like you did not adhere to or strictly just glazed right over, for instance, reading back the numbers with another nurse, double RN verification, charting double RN verification, checking the name band on the actual patient, never check blood outside a room, please. It's horrible practice. I've seen it done. It's horrible practice. Um, if it were your mother, brother, aunt, uncle, sister, would you want the nurse checking the blood outside the room? Or would you want the nurses to go into the room and read it back and forth? Think about that. Substandard delivery of care is the answer. And the rationale is that the plaintiff must prove that the care received was substandard. So below what normally should be done, what a prudent nurse would do, 
in your case, whatever you're supposed to be doing in your hospital, so policy and procedure, it isn't necessary to prove intent or that you wanted to cause harm. Mitigating circumstances are issues that would be brought up by the defendant, not the plaintiff. Again, I told you that was to throw you off course. And negligence is, by definition, an unintentional tort or a civil wrong done without intent by the defendant. Therefore, it isn't necessary to demonstrate lack of intent. Remember I said these, are, these words are thrown in there to throw you off? So, again, intent is in A and intent is in D. So you can get rid of those two right away. And then C, mitigating circumstances, that doesn't even make sense. And again, if you know anything about a court of law that has to do with the opposite side. Um, so there's actually only one right answer there. Okay, so um, real quick, we'll go over, let's see, let's do one more question, um, just because I'm a little pressed for time today and I wanna keep this short. So cardiovascular emergencies. Let's see. Now, this is one of those fun CEN questions that gives you a big, long blurb. Um, NCLEX does this too. And what they do is they try to get you to go down the rabbit hole. And it works with a lot of people because they start to get anxiety. <laughs> the minute they read the question, they're like, oh my goodness, this question is so long. Um, here's what I do. And this is how I teach it. Go to the very end of this question. And it's called at the end there's a key phrase it's called the stem question so based on this information what further testing do you anticipate for this client okay this is a question where i'm gonna have to use my clinical reasoning skills and figure out what the heck is going on so i'm putting on my clinical diagnostician cap i'm gonna think critically because that's what it's going to ask me to do so of course, at the end of the question, I have four diagnostic procedures. So that's what I'm gonna have to do. So I go back and I read the STEM. So the STEM is always gonna tell you what state of mind are you in or what drug category are you in or what um, clinical category are you in. So for instance, when you have the CEN, your questions aren't gonna go in order. You're not gonna have five cardiovascular questions and two respiratory questions and then three legal questions like it's going to be all over the place so it's going to be just like the NCLEX there's going to be questions from all categories from all walks of life and they're going to be interspersed so you just have to read the stem first and think okay I'm an OB nurse today <laughs> this is what I'm looking at or hey I'm a PEDS nurse okay this is what I'm doing so read the stem first and that will help tell you what category you're in because that comes in very handy um, because what happens is when people start reading these questions they're very long and tedious and they get thrown down like I say the rabbit hole they get caught up on the heart rate or the, they get caught up on the pulse ox or the respiratory oh they're tachypneic they're tachycardiac oh no blah 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 blah, blah. you see where I'm going with this however just look at the stem so this particular question um, we're gonna read the rest of the question here in a minute, but it's diagnostic. It's asking you to make a decision based on a clinical presentation of this patient. So you have a 46-year-old female client arrives in the ED complaining of chest pain after high-speed MBC. Right there. What do you think of automatically? Tear of the ligamentum arteriosum, right? For blood chest trauma. 
but we haven't got quite there yet. But I'm just telling you the train of thought that I'm thinking. Blood pressure is 100 over 54, heart rate's 96. No bueno, right? She's 46, so she's probably relatively healthy. Um, so she's hypotensive. She's tachycardic almost, right? Because she's right on the edge. But for her, if she's healthy, that's probably tacky for her. Um, Respirers are 22 breaths per minute. After initial stabilization, the physician orders a, a chest x-ray, which re reveals a mediastinal widening, which we know has to do with triple A, right? So we're already thinking down that line. She also has a trach deviation to the right, so pneumo on the left or hemoneuma on the left, and left first and second rib fractures. So not quite flail, but not looking too good. So based on this information, what further testing would you anticipate for this client? Okay, here's your choices. Aortography, um, DPL, old school, I know. C, abdominal ultrasound, or D, CT of the head. Now, we know that this is kind of an older school type exam just because this is like I think it's second edition, so excuse me. It was, should just say CT from head to toe. <laughs> um, but the CT of the head is trying to throw you off, so you can get rid of that, get rid of D. Abdominal ultrasound. This was pre-fast, okay? Again, it's trying to throw you off. Is she going to have abdominal trauma? I'm sure she probably does, but we're going to do a bedside fast. But you've already got a widened mediastinum, so what's that telling you? Again, she had blunt chest trauma, high-speed MVC, tear of the ligamentum arteriosum. will kill the patient, right? She's probably got a, a tear in her aorta. Aorta, aorta, aorta. Which of these four things say aorta? Only one answer. And it happens to be A. <laughs> no pun intended there. A. You're going to look at the aorta. Um, you're actually going to do that via CT. Again, this is a second edition. Um, so it's a little bit older. DPL. For those of you who do not know that our younger nurses, we used to do DPL um, for diagnostic pre-fast. Um, we used to do that just to see if they had blood in their belly. We do not do that anymore. It's antiquated. Um, some places will say, oh, we do it if our fast machine is not working or something weird like that. Or if you got an old school trauma surgeon. But pretty much that went out in like the 90s, early 2000s. Can't remember. Um, and then abdominal ultrasound. Again, it's throwing you off. It's trying to get you go down a rabbit hole with thinking about her abdomen. But what's the thing that's going to kill her? a tear in her aorta. So the rationale, of course, the answer is A. Um, that will show you visualization of the aortic injury. Again, the, remember the ligamentum arteriosum, which kind of holds your aorta in place with blunt chest trauma. So high-speed mechanism injury, mechanism injury, mechanism injury. You got high-speed blunt chest trauma is going to disrupt all those great vessels in the chest, right? So again, she has some other injuries. It's telling you, oh, she's got rib fracture. She's got a hemoneumo, this, that, and the other. Yeah, you're probably going to tube her and send her to the CT. And of course, I'm sure that if this is a level one or two trauma center, she's just going to go straight to the OR after you um, check out her chest real quick. But um, 
there's only one right answer for this, and it's looking at the aorta because you have to think about um, the mechanism of injury. So again, this is an older um, edition. So let's see. Let's do one more just to see what they're going to throw at us here. Oh, here's a good one. This one is a pregnant patient who's coming in 34 weeks pregnant. So a patient who is 34 weeks pregnant arrives at the ED in cardiac arrest following a trauma. So remember, not two patients, but one. But in this instance, you can only save one patient because it sounds as if mom is a uh, resuscitation or she's already actually like coded in the field. So what does this mean for the client and her fetus? So go back again. This could be one of those questions where they kind of throw you down the rabbit hole and give you a bunch of information like baby's having late B cells and it's, it's clear that the baby's hypoxic and you know, you want to turn the mom to the left side, yada, 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 heart rates, this, whatever. But read the STEM question. It says, what does this mean for the client and her fetus? Hmm. Well, what do you got to do? You got to get the baby out. But let's go through and read the answers. Um, A, the mother and infant have a greater chance of survival if an emergency C-section is performed. B, the mother's chances of survival are greater if the fetus excuse me, isn't emergently delivered. Hmm. What? C. Fetal death is certain. How could you predict that? Get rid of that one. D. The fetus has a greater chance of survival if allowed to go to term. Makes zero sense. She's 34 weeks. We know that 20 weekers are doing, they're doing miracles now in the NICU. Okay, so you automatically can get rid of C and D. B. Let's go back to B. The mother's chances of survival are greater if the fetus isn't emergently delivered. How does that possibly make sense? It doesn't, because if, if obviously if the fetus is still in the mom's womb inside the uterus, what's that gonna do to oxygen demands? And we're already saying that mom's in cardiorespiratory arrest. So from an oxygen demand standpoint, that makes zero sense. So basically through the process of elimination, you can get rid of B, C, and D. So A, is the only answer. Um, mother and infant have greater chance of survival if an emergency C-section is performed. So of course the rationale is in the instance of a cardiac arrest following trauma, the mom and baby have a greater chance of survival if the fetus is delivered immediately by C-section. So just like I mentioned, um, that's why you have that pre-sit pack in your trauma room and you've got the panda warmer ready to go and you've been in-serviced on it and you feel comfortable with it. Please don't wait until you're in this scenario with a mom who's in getting CPR um, and you need to get the baby out. That's not the time to familiarize yourself with the warmer, whatever you have in your trauma room. Um, please, please make yourself do it. Um, get the NICU nurse educator or ClinSpec down there and have her run through it with you. It's so important. Um, so a C-section is indicated when the gestation is greater than 26 weeks and resuscitation attempts seem terminal. So make sure um, that you're getting your team down there too. If you have troops to call in, call them in um, from labor and delivery. So I know that they, um, in most hospitals, they're more than happy um, to respond when you have these types of cases. So that is all that I have for today. Um, again, we can revisit some other questions another time, but 
like I said, I had gotten a lot of DMs about this type of question or certification exams have come across my DM multiple times. So let me know how you liked it. Uh, We'll go from there. And thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you downloading this podcast and have a great afternoon, morning, or good night. Bye-bye.